0: church family, it is great to be together this morning gathered as the body of saints here at Nansman River Baptist Church. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at the verse 26 verses of this chapter this morning and in a moment we will stand and read a few of those together to begin our time. Uh, Let me remind you as you find your place in God's Word and get your notes ready to go that tonight at 6 o'clock we will gather again uh, for two purposes. Number one, to have our annual members meeting. Uh, The members of our church have some business that we conduct at the end of every year. In November of every year, looking forward to uh, the following calendar year. So we'll adopt a budget together. Uh, We'll elect some officers and do some things. There's an agenda at the Um, uh, at the information desk just past the Equip Center. The ministry action plan, which is our budget for next year, is there. A job description for a new director of student ministries is there. We'll ask you to uh, vote on that tonight as well. If you are not a member of our church, you're welcome to come to our members' meetings. We're glad to have you here. You will find that we um, uh, handle business together well and probably rather expediently uh, also. Uh, After our members' meeting, we will have our Thanksgiving service. So we anticipate the members' meeting taking about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, And then we will go into a time of Thanksgiving together. We will worship the Lord. We will come to the Lord's table. Probably my favorite time that we come to the Lord's table together is when we do it at Thanksgiving. Because... Uh, While we focus on Thanksgiving meals that are huge, we come to this small piece of bread and this small cup to remind us of that with which we should be the most thankful. So I'll talk about that tonight. We will receive communion together. And then the thing that I absolutely love that we do is that we give you the opportunity to share what you are thankful for to the Lord, for our church, for people within our church. And so I encourage you, don't miss tonight. Now, don't, don't find an excuse not to be here. Be here at six uh, as we handle some business together and then uh, return thanks to the Lord uh, together as a body. So we look forward to seeing you tonight. I'll invite you now to stand with me. We're going to start reading because our passage is rather lengthy today. We're going to start reading in verse 17, which kind of picks up in the middle of a story, but it'll make sense to you. I'm reading down through verse 21. Mark writes for us, and Jesus aware of this, that the disciples were debating about the fact that they didn't bring any bread, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray together. Father, we ask you now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will help us understand because we need you to understand. We need you to open our eyes, unstop our, our ears, and let us hear and see the truth of Jesus. Let us not miss the signs of who you are and why you have come, that we may have, as we have sung together, the keys of Zion City, the keys of the kingdom of God, Would you bless us in our time and your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our sermon entitled this morning, Sign, Sign, Everywhere, a Sign. If you've been coming here any length of time, you know I never pass a good opportunity to interject classic rock and roll into my sermons, so here we go. In 1971, a Canadian rock band named the Five Man Electric Band released what really became a one-hit wonder for them in the United States. They had other popular songs in Canada and even Australia, but there was only one that really charted in the United States. It rose to, I believe, number three on the Billboard 100 uh, during that year. The song was about a man who saw signs everywhere, signs about who can work, where you can go, what you have to wear when you go there, and even a verse, the last verse, uh, somewhat misguided about church towards the end. The chorus of this song said, sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind, do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? As I was preparing this all week, that was going through my mind. Because I think Mark 8 is intended for us as a question. Can't you read the signs? Mark is going to record events, true events in the life of Jesus in a way that just screams to. Don't you see who Jesus is? Jesus is going to really ask, as we've read in our opening text, this question of the disciples. Do you not yet understand? Can't you read the sign? main idea of our sermon is that the signs of who Jesus is are abundant. But we need his help to see them clearly. So that should be our prayer this morning. Jesus, would you open our eyes to the signs of who you are? For the believer and the unbeliever alike, would you show us more clearly the person and work of our our Messiah, Jesus Christ? So let's look at these signs together. The first, the same sign for a different people. This first event that Mark records in in the eighth chapter of this book is something that Jesus has already done once before. Mark is the only gospel author that tells us about this event and it stands as highly important for who Mark is writing to and the argument that Mark is making that we don't miss the signs. So in Mark chapter eight, once again, Jesus feeds a multitude, having already in Mark chapter six fed 5,000 people Jesus is now going to feed a crowd of 4,000. Look with me at the beginning of this chapter. In those days, when a, crowd, when a great crowd had gathered and they had, not, had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I sent them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied. Skip to verse nine, and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. Now, this is a familiar story. If you've been coming over the last several weeks, Jesus has done this once in Mark chapter six in Galilee, in the land of Israel, Jesus has fed 5,000 men. There would have certainly been more that had gathered. There are some similarities, but some also differences in these two stories. Jesus, for instance, in Mark eight, in the feeding of the 4,000 is far more direct than he is in Mark 6 in Mark 6 he's far more reactive it is the disciples who are saying what are we supposed to do with all of these people telling Jesus they should send them away but here it is Jesus having compassion on these people and Jesus specifically saying I don't want to send them away they've been with me three days they're out of food they're going to faint on the way home in chapter eight, Jesus. Or in chapter six, Jesus feeds the five thousand with five loaves and two fish. In chapter eight, he feeds the four thousand with seven loaves and a few small fish. In chapter six, we're told that he fed five thousand men. Here, he fed four thousand. the The mindset of Jesus in this text and maybe even the number of people that he fed is important for our understanding of why Mark is recording this. By telling us in verse one that Jesus that this happened in those days, this meant that this took place while Jesus is still in the area known as the Decapolis, the ten Roman cities, most of which were on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And while there were some Jewish people that lived in this land, this would be the area of the Golan Heights, Jordan. uh, Now that. That was while some Jews lived there, it was primarily a Gentile region. And as we saw last week, Jesus is expanding the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And Mark 8 continues that theme. And so Jesus is he's taking the position of compassion upon a Gentile audience and choosing to do amongst Gentiles what he has already done amongst the Jewish people. Early church fathers quickly developed the position concerning this text that the four thousand Gentiles representing Gentiles, while likely some Jews were mixed in, in Mark chapter eight, that the, that four thousand represented the four corners of the earth as a sign of the spread of the gospel to all peoples. This is the same sign. Jesus doing something that no earthly human could do, feeding first 5,000 people by breaking just a few loaves and fish and now feeding 4,000 Gentiles with the same resources, giving this sign again that the gospel has come to both Jew and Gentile. And at the end of this story, once again, Jesus provides a significant surplus. Look at the part of the eighth verse that we skipped. Mark tells us, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Then verse 10 tells us, immediately got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So Jesus is going to do this work amongst the Gentiles and then immediately leave. This is sealing the last several events in the ministry of Jesus amongst these Gentiles. This is the final sign that they need, that the gospel has come to Gentiles just as it has come to the Jewish people. Now another significant difference between what Jesus does in Mark 6 and what Jesus does in Mark 8 is the amount of leftovers. We're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I think we all make way too much food at Thanksgiving just so we can have leftovers. I like the leftover Thanksgiving sandwich, right, where you take pretty much everything you had and you put it between two pieces of toast, you get that cranberry sauce on both sides. Ooh. <laughs> leftovers are important, Right? Well, the leftovers in both Mark six and Mark eight have significant meaning. In Mark six, it's twelve baskets that were left over, and twelve it was a significant amount. It was in a just a practical sense, one basket per disciple. That Jesus was teaching his disciples that he would provide abundantly for them, and each of them walked away with a basket full of food left over. But even more significantly than that, the number 12 in scripture should not be lost on us. There were 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus performing the miracle of feeding the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 amongst the Jews is saying that the gospel has come to Israel in abundance. But here it's not 12. In Mark 8, it's seven baskets, we're told, that are left over from the seven loaves that began with. And seven again is a significant number. It's the number of days in the creation account representing completeness. The work of Jesus isn't complete without the spread of the gospel to the world. And by feeding again, Gentiles, in the same way that he fed Israel, Jesus is showing that the gospel has come to the world. That His message and salvation will spread to all people. Then in the middle part of this chapter, get a couple of instances where people have just missed it. Just missed it. They didn't see the signs as they should. The first group is the Pharisees. We're going to see a brief encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees where he refuses to give them another sign concerning who he really is. So we're told in verse 10 that Jesus has crossed over from the Golan side of the lake to what is likely the southwest corner of the lake near the fishing village of Magdala. Here, Jesus encounters the Pharisees before quickly leaving again. Look in verses 11 through 13. Mark records, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again and went to the other side Mark 8 is reminding us that Jesus is done has done all that is necessary in Galilee. We've already seen the climax of his Galilean ministry with his confrontation in the previous chapter with the Pharisees. This just serves Uh, kind of as a postlude, this, this is just one more reminder for us that Jesus has already done what he needs to do in that place and that the Pharisees' hearts were so hardened that even an additional sign, even 10 additional signs, no matter the number, would not convince them of who he was because their hearts were hardened. They had already missed the sign. They had already missed Jesus healing and feeding and forgiving. They had already looked past all of those and were told now come to him demanding another sign, and this is important, to test him. Once again, the Pharisees come to Jesus seeking to trap And Jesus, we're told, deeply sighs in his spirit and looks at them and recognizing the hardness of their heart says, no sign will be given to you. Recording this same event, Matthew in chapter 12, gives us a little more clarity, a little more detail of what Jesus says. Matthew records, starting in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she has come from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All that was left for the Pharisees who had rejected the signs, the clear and abundant signs of who Jesus is was the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It's in two parts. Number one, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that the Son of Man would be in the tomb three days and three nights and be resurrected just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for that amount of time. Now, hopefully you attend small group here. We encourage all of our members to be a part of a small group. And in small group, just a few weeks ago, we studied the book of Jonah. We spent some time together talking about the book of Jonah and we host a small group at my house and I try to just participate in it and not be the pastor all the time. And so I sit in my lazy boy and just kind of, you know, participate some. And we were talking about Jonah and we were going back and forth about the history of Jonah and the meaning of Jonah in that time. And, you know, we, we'd gotten, and I finally just got to a point where I went, hey guys, all of this is about Jesus. Just kind of the whole thing. We ought to read the whole book about about Jonah through the lens of Jesus. That what Jonah is doing in the belly of the fish, preaching in Nineveh, that all of this should bring clarity to us as we look back on Jonah through the ministry of Jesus. That Jonah was setting up something for Jesus. And Jonah is the sign for that adulterous generation. These people whose hearts were so hardened that they refused to believe but it isn't only, only, the only sign that was left was not just the Son of Man in the tomb three days and three nights, but also Nineveh rising up in judgment against that generation. That those in Jesus' day who, res, who refused to see the truth about who Jesus was would be replaced with the likes of men from Nineveh. These people who would have been looked down on and despised by the Israelites, they would repent and believe and replace them. And this is exactly what is happening in the days of Jesus as the gospel spreads to the Gentiles and those who should have known better. The ruling religious elite, those who knew the Hebrew scriptures better than anyone, should have known who the Messiah was. And yet, they refused to see the signs. But the Pharisees weren't the only ones at risk of missing the signs. Even Jesus' disciples were at risk. And he warns them, don't miss the signs. Look at the next account, starting in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. I love the way Mark sets this up for us. Mark sets this scene for us. Once again, the concern going to bread, this basic essential of life, and they only have one loaf, and man, are they going to fret over the fact that they only brought one loaf on a trip across a lake that's only about two miles wide. And he cautioned them, saying, "Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod." And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, uh, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, "Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? In your hearts, are your hearts hardened? Have having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember?" When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to them, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You read this. You've got to ask this question. How in the world are the disciples still worried about bread? How is this still a conversation that we're having? Well, partially because it's much more than about bread. The disciples are still fixed on, we'll just take this in order. The disciples are fixed on this earthly thing, and Jesus starts with a warning. He says simply, watch out. So he's hearing this discussion. He's like, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So leaven is that which makes bread rise. And as we've seen elsewhere in scripture, leaven is used as a metaphor for these little things that will end up ruining something much larger, that it will spread out amongst something much larger. And that's what Jesus is warning about two versions of leaven, one the leaven of the Pharisees and the other leaven of Herod. Now, he's just encountered the Pharisees, which is going to be why Jesus is speaking back towards that event. And if he is leaving, departing out of Magdala, which is likely that area that that Mark is referring to, it's just the next town over from a place called Tiberias. And Tiberias is where Herod had his temple, and it was up on this hill. And so you can kind of get this picture of Jesus having just had a conversation with the Pharisees, this, this confrontation, he, he, he gets in the boat, he goes out in the boat just a little way, and in the shadow of Herod's palace, here his disciples are once again concerned that they forgot to buy bread before their trip. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, the Lord spoke to him and tells Ezekiel something about his generation that becomes a forerunner like Jonah for Jesus. The Lord says, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are rebellious house." And this is Jesus' concern for his disciples, that they would be like the Pharisees. And while they have eyes, not be able to see. And while they have ears, not be able to hear. And he warns them about this leaven. The leaven of the, the Pharisees is the leaven of hypocrisy. In Matthew 16, verse 12, Matthew, as the narrator of that gospel account, gives us this note. He says, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, obviously, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, the teaching of the religious elite of that day was legalism. It was do this to please God. It was not grace. It was not trust in the Messiah. It was based fully on action and that Matthew tells us the disciples understood that Jesus's warning was against the teaching of the Pharisees Luke though further clarifies for us in Luke chapter 12 it says in the meantime when so many thousands of people had gathered together they were trampled one another and he began to say to his disciples first beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus clarifies for us here what we saw two weeks ago when we were looking at the teaching of the Pharisees, and that is legalism always leads to hypocrisy. And here's Jesus' concern for his disciples. His concern for his disciples was that they were going to miss what was sitting right in front of them. And that they were going to worry about the same kind of things that the Pharisees were worried about. But he also warns them about the leaven of Herod. Likely sitting here in the shadow of Herod's palace, he looks up and says, beware of the the leaven of, of Herod. Herod represents worldliness because both legalism, the Pharisees, and worldliness. Herod can make us hypocrites. We can become so focused on either of those things that we miss the real bread of life that is sitting in the boat in front of us. And that was Jesus's concern for his disciples, that they would have eyes but not see, that they would have Ears, but not hear. They had watched this man multiply for multitudes twice, bread upon bread, to the point where they had so much left over as a sign, not that Jesus could do miraculous things, but that Jesus is the Messiah. And his concern is that they would be like the legalists. They would be like Herod, and they would fail to see who Jesus truly is. Number three, Jesus opens our eyes to see the signs. What happens next is a true event in the life of Jesus, but one with a very significant spiritual meaning, where we see Jesus landing on the other side, gradually opening the eyes of a blind man. Pick up in verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, He sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, this is a true event. This happened. And like we saw last week with Jesus sticking his fingers in a guy's ear and grabbing his tongue, I can't fully explain the physical actions of Jesus here other than Jesus is intentionally gradually healing this man. And then Mark places... This account where he does in his theological argument of the gospel account screaming to us, we need the help of Jesus to open our eyes. So yes, Jesus actually opened the eyes of this blind man. But more importantly than that, Jesus opens the spiritual eyes of people so that they can see. He has just asked his disciples, do you have eyes yet not see? Do you have ears and not yet hear having previously healed a deaf man? And so here Jesus shows us how he opens the eyes, not only of the physically blind, but he opens the eyes of the spiritually blind so that we can see. And this has been his mission from the beginning. We go back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Galilee and he's in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and here's what happens. He's brought up to the to, to the synagogue, we're told, as was his custom, and he stood on the Sabbath day to read. In verse 17, a scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolled the scroll. And found the place where it was written. Listen to what he reads from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yes. Yes. Jesus healed physically blind people. Yes, Jesus healed physically deaf people. Jesus healed physically lame people. But far more important than that, Jesus opens the eyes and unstops the ears of those whom he calls to believe in him for salvation. We're born with these blinders on. We're born with our ears just stuffed full. And the world and the enemy continues to darken our eyes and to muffle our ears. But Jesus has a way of doing that which we cannot do. And that is solving our spiritual blindness opening our eyes to the truth of who he is so that we don't miss the signs. Now there's two story arcs in the gospel of Mark that are back to back. One beginning in Mark chapter 6 verse 30 with the feeding of the 5,000. The other beginning in Mark chapter 8 verse 1 beginning with the feeding of the 4,000. And when you walk through these two story arcs, they're actually very, very similar Both begin with Jesus feeding a multitude of people. Then after feeding a multitude of people, Jesus and his disciples take boat trips. Then after those boat trips, Jesus in both accounts has confrontations with the Pharisees concerning their hypocrisy. And after the conversation with the Pharisees concerning their hypocrisy, Jesus has conversations about bread that isn't really about bread at all. One here in Mark 8 with his disciples, the other in Mark 7 with a Gentile woman. Following that, Jesus heals at the end of the first story arc a deaf man. And at the end of the second story arc, he heals a blind man. All of this repeating for us, shouting to us, don't miss the signs. And all of this leading up to what we will see next week where Peter makes a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But before we get to that, before we get to next week, we must ask the question this week about what we have seen in Jesus. And this very simple question is, what the scriptures tell me about Jesus enough for me to believe? Or am I going to be like the Pharisees and continue to demand more? so what? Do I believe the clear signs concerning Jesus or am I demanding to see more? If you are demanding to see more, you are like the Pharisees and in your spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness, you may never get to the place where enough is enough. And this is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They got to the point, I give you nothing else. I have nothing else to give you because everything that I have shown you should have taught you who I am and yet you missed it. And we, the receivers of God's word, should be able to read this, should be able to look across these two story arcs and say, I believe in the signs. I believe in who Jesus is. I believe in who the word of God tells me the Messiah is is, I will no longer demand more. I will in faith trust in Jesus. Towards the beginning of his first letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul talks about this very idea that there are going to be some who believe and there are going to be some who are always skeptical. Listen about how he writes of them. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Let me just stop there for a minute. This means that for lost people, they're going to think the gospel is silly. And because the scripture tells us they're going to think the gospel is silly, we shouldn't be surprised, get this, when they think the gospel is silly. I'm amazed at Christians and how we react to the world when the world thinks we're nuts. They're supposed to think that. It's what the Bible says. All right, so let's just all get on board with we believe something that the world, the Bible says the world is going to think is folly. But to those who are being saved, to the church, it is the power of God. So it's folly to them, it's the power of God for us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Notice what he says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the jews and folly to the gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men i appeal to you my friend don't be so wise in your own eyes that you miss the truth of who jesus is don't be so caught up in your own demand for personal evidence that you demand more and more sets of proofs hardening your heart to the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is always going to seem like foolishness to those outside who have believed it. In church, we have embraced it. And because we've embraced it, it is no longer foolishness to us. It is now the power of God to save us. My friend, if you've been resisting the truth of who Jesus is up until this point, here's what I'm going to appeal to you. Believe in this same folly that we have believed in because it is true. And in its truth, embracing its truth, you too will experience the power of God. Your eyes will be opened. Your ears will be unstopped. Your heart will turn to flesh. And Jesus will live in you. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, died so that you could have life And yes, that seems like folly to the world. Oh, but to those who have believed, it is the very power of God at work in our lives. So church, we live in that power. We live trusting in the signs of who Jesus is, never wavering in our faith that what the scripture says to be true about Jesus is true and it is why we will spend eternity with God. My friend who has never put your faith in Jesus, the appeal to you is to do so today. Stop demanding more signs. Trust in Christ. Believe today and be saved. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) And all those years ago, you opened my eyes so that I could see. And it Just dozens and dozens and dozens of people in this room have that same testimony of faith. They stopped demanding for signs and believed in faith of who Jesus Christ is. God, we pray that you would do that for people just now. They're hearing this and they want to believe. Give them the ability to believe. Open their eyes. Unstop their ears. Change their hearts, we pray. God, would we be a church that lives on the truth of this gospel, unwavering, unmoving, unwilling to budge off of what you have said is true. Thank you that Jesus has saved us. Would he now by the power of the Holy Spirit save more, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If your response to this is, I need to believe that at the end of the service, I'll be, I'll buy our connect desk in the lobby. Come and talk to me. Let, let me share with you how you can put your faith in Jesus. As a church family, what we do now is we sing about our wondrous Savior and that gospel that has saved us. Would you stand as we respond together?